Okay, questions, thoughts, complaints, a haiku. Oh, Ron's got Ron. Ron's going first. Uh, I just wanted to comment. I think you did pretty good going seven months without making a mistake. Oh dear. You said you had made a mistake about the communion, so I thought you went pretty okay. good going seven months this year without a mistake. That's, yeah, well, the last time I made a mistake is when I thought I made a mistake, but I didn't. <laughs> Turned out I was wrong, but hey, no. no. What? Yes. No, my, my wife will tell you different. Actually, I got my family in town. They will, they will certainly tell you different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Alex. Jesus says he will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until the kingdom comes, but doesn't he drink on the cross through the sour wine that they offer him? Um, I think, doesn't he turn away from, they offer him sour wine. He doesn't actually drink it. I think he does drink it. Look it up, where? Maybe not in Luke's account, but. That's not. Alex, what passage would would you like us to consult? To look at this and deal with this. I'll check Mark. You can check Matthew. I'll check Matthew. Um, (laughs) I don't think it's Mark. Matthew 27, Elsa for the win. Matthew 27, 28? Okay. Give me a moment and I'll be there. 2748. It was in Mark. Good grief. Elsa, like a boss. Okay. Okay, so we'll take them one at a time. Matthew, hold those ready because there's no way I'm going to remember that in my head. So Matthew uh, 27, um, verse 48. One of them at once took, ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. No actual listing that he drank it. And part of the, part of the reason they're doing this is, is, is some of it's to mock him, but they also offer him wine mixed with myrrh, which is basically meant to be a painkiller. Um, well, among other things. <laughs> um, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yelled and gave, yielded up his spirit. So Matthew has no mention of him actually drinking it. What? Is that in Mark? 34. Matthew, okay, wow, we're jumping, hold on. They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. There it is. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. So he tastes it, but doesn't drink the wine mixed with gall. They offer him the sour wine to mock him. It's both. They offer him one wine as kind of like a painkiller. Like, hey, this will help take the edge off, as it were. Yes? John 19... 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Receive, okay. Yeah. Yeah, Yes, you want to jump in? Good question, Alex. Psalm sixty nine twenty one. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Right. So I, I don't think he's guzzling the vinegar. Uh, in the other account, when as soon as he tastes it and realizes what it is, he's done. 
But even more specifically, Alex, I think in the context of which he's speaking, it's this Passover meal. So even though he generally says, I won't drink of the cup of fruit of the vine, which I think is true, the most specific application is he's not going to sit down and have a celebratory meal until the kingdom is consummated and there's the marriage supper of the Lamb. But the fact that some sour wine touched his lips, which you wouldn't want to drink once you realized what it was, I mean, it's vinegar, basically, um, doesn't, I think, violate that. That's a very good observation. <laughs> More? Go. Okay. One other interesting thing, if Zeb would point this out if you were here. Do um, you remember Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons? What they do? What do they do? They offer up strange fires, profane offerings, and God kills them. And then there's a new rule for the priests serving in the temple, which is what? No alcohol. And interestingly, at what event does Jesus enter into his high priestly ministry? The cross, the resurrection. So Zeb pointed out, what's interesting is priests under the Mosaic law are prohibited from, from drinking wine while they're serving. And Jesus, during the extent of his high priestly ministry, right, before the throne of God above, have a, right, doesn't drink from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. It's interesting. He'd want me to point that out if you were here, so. He's your son, so. Yes. Okay, no, you, what? Right, right. The Roman Catholic Church flips that because the priest drinks the wine and the congregation doesn't. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, that, I'd add that to a longer list of potential complaints. So, yeah. Anybody, next, next thing or want to run with that? For, oh, all the way in the back. Mitchell needs a microphone. The five people who listen to the podcast have voiced their insistence on that, though. Those five people are persistent. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Isaiah 25, verse, verses 6 to 9 is a reference to the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. Isaiah 25. And my question, uh, well, I guess maybe that would be my first question. Correct me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then secondly, 25, 6 on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. Yes. Is this what Jesus is referring to in Luke 22? I tend to think so. When I mentioned the point earlier that wine was normally typified for celebration, feasting, marriage suppers, but the Messianic age in particular... The kingdom of the Messiah is typified by abundance. And with the wine, the, the uh, free time to celebrate. I mean, it's, it's a two-package deal. You can't, you're not drinking wine. You're out in the field threshing grain. The whole notion of a wine, well-aged wine, is you're stopping. You're having a feast. You're having a celebration. And so it's not just the, uh, the grain of the animals, but it's the whole package where there'll be wine and time to drink it. So that's, yeah, there's, there's a ton of texts where... Wine, among other blessings. It's not just like the Messianic Age is, is you know, going to be a Bacchanalian festival. But with the abundance of crops, with the abundance of, of economic prosperity, with the military and geopolitical 
prosperity. With the fertility blessings will also come milk and wine, among other things. And that's what typifies it. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you. Next. Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. Did you say? Isaiah, Isaiah 26 and following. You can just put 6 and following, Deb. And then you can... Oh, Renee Lucia. Renee. Well, that's interesting because I had like kind of the same comment. Uh, 1C, number 3, which is Jesus will eat the Passover again with the disciples. <clears throat> and that was um, Luke thirteen twenty nine. I always thought that was referring to the wedding supper of the Lamb. No, it is. What all, I was, all I was making the reference there is... I think sometimes when we think of uh, the future, Christ's return, we picture people on clouds with harps and we sort of sit around doing nothing. There's feasts, there's meals. Now, that one there, maybe the marriage of the Lamb, maybe it's a Passover celebration. They're reclining at, I just made the connection, they're reclining at tables, a similar type of feast. We also know from the end of Zechariah that year after year the nations go up and keep the Feast of Booths. So I, I couldn't tell you which one, the one in 13, is. Uh, I think the marriage supper of the Lamb kicks things off. But in that time period, there'll be many, apparently many opportunities to eat and recline at table. And so Jesus is pointing to that. That's all I was trying to get with that. Not that I could say with any certainty what particular meal Luke 13 is getting at. But no, good, good point. And with communion, um, it's for me, I always think of the remembrance, but also the looking forward to the wedding supper of the Lamb and how... Yeah. Jesus was longing uh, with death hanging over him and the suffering, longing and desiring to eat the Passover. I just think of how he's longing for the wedding supper of the Lamb. Yeah. For the joy Mm -hmm. set before him, he endured the cross, Mm -hmm. despising its shame, right? He's looking to something further ahead to get through those deep waters. Absolutely. Good. You guys are actually asking questions today. This is fantastic. And it's I killed it. <laughs> oh, Linda. Can you summarize um, points one and three of those last three? You were talking so fast. It was hard to write everything. So Do I talk the, fast? <laughs> no. What are the major points yes. of those? I kind of got two. but So one, where are we at on the outline? So what? those, no, the, the post, yeah, after you stopped with okay. the outline, then you oh, said three okay. things. Yes, yes. Okay, and this is actually my pastor's pen for this coming months. Basically, three points of comparison. In what way is Jesus' work in Jerusalem likened to the Exodus? So the point is, on on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses, who of course led the first Exodus, speaks to Jesus about the Exodus he's going to accomplish in Jerusalem. In what way is it helpful, useful, edifying to think of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection as an Exodus? Three points, at least. One, the Lamb of God was slain. There's a lamb slain, and judgment is averted. Mercy comes. God passes over sins in the first instance. In the second instance, here's the Lamb of God, Christ, our Passover, sacrifice for us, which provides that. Point one. Point two, deliverance in Egypt from physical, um, geopolitical slavery and bondage. Deliverance from spiritual slavery and bondage. Point three, it is connected closely in the first Passover with the giving of the law and the covenant with God at Sinai and the new covenant. 
So that is the connection between like Exodus 24, eight. behold the blood of the covenant. Jesus, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Similar-ish introductory formulae. So you've got a lamb, you've got deliverance, and you've got a covenant. Moses performed an exodus through the blood of a lamb, delivering a people to make a covenant with God. Jesus is the lamb, delivers his people, and brings in the new covenant. That's, I think, at least three points where you can liken Jesus' work to the original exodus. That's my summary. But that will be in like seven paragraphs at the beginning of August. Oh, we're on again. I appreciated your explanation of the Old Testament connection with the unleavened bread with uh, because being a former Catholic, we yeah. were never ever, that was never explained thoroughly. Right. And so, you know, we were taught that that was actually supposed to be the Right. Body of Christ. Right. So let's, let's take a moment. I didn't add it in the message just because there's enough stuff there to get even more confusing with categories. The two main views in, comp- in com- competition with memorial, it's, it's, it's only a sign. And I don't, when I say only a sign, I don't want to make that mean it's unimportant. You can, you can blaspheme signs. You can transgress signs. Signs are significant. Um, God, like the rainbow, circumcision, God seemed pretty serious about that stuff, even though they're just signs. But the Roman Catholic view is transubstantiation. That the, the, once the, the priest prays over, uh, gives the words of institution and prays over the, the, what they call the host, the bread and the wine, it literally becomes the physical body and blood of Jesus. So much so that there's canon law about what to do, I'm dead serious, what to do if a crumb falls and a mouse eats it. You, no, you, you can't kill the mouse. Um, in, in fact, I'll take it a step further, because of Rome's view of how the sacraments work, which is not dependent upon the qualifications of the priest doing them, because um, with simony going on, with people buying positions, the question was, if you've got some guy who later proves to be an unbeliever or illegitimate, did all the things he do, all the services he provided, are those legitimate? So Rome's answer is no. As long as the rite is worked properly, um, it's valid. So you literally had in the Middle Ages, I mean, John Wycliffe, one of the reasons he, no, Tyndale, sorry, William Tyndale, one of the reasons he wanted to put the Bible in English is you had these, these people who bought their positions or their parents had bought their positions speaking Latin, having no idea what they were saying, and yet Rome's doctrine was as long as they said it right, it works. And the part of the Mass where the body, and where the bread becomes the body and the blood is when the priest says, hortus es corpus, which became known to mean hocus pocus. That is absolutely the origin of that phrase. It's absolute. No, look, it's, that's not a myth. Look it up. Hocus pocus came from the notion, as soon as this is said, and I don't even know what it means, order says corpus, it, boom, becomes the body and blood of Christ. That's transubstantiation. Luther and Lutheranism developed consubstantiation, which is the belief that, as I understand it, you need platonic categories to start. So Plato, in his mind, has the thing itself in theory, in the spirit mind world, and then the physical expression. So you ever heard Plato's cave? So in Plato's view, this world is simply the, uh, the phenomenal world, is the world, it's imperfect, it's broken, but, but uh, the, the theory thought world is perfect and pure, and there's what a thing, and there's its essence, and there's the expression of a thing, this is the way Plato breaks things down. 
And so Luther, the physical expression of the bread and the wine remains unchanged. It's still bread and wine, put it under a microscope, it's bread and wine. However, its essence has changed. And now in, with, and under, and around, in its essence is the body and blood of Christ. Um, and that, in fact, was the big reason when the Reformation happened why Luther and um, Zwingli couldn't unite. The, the Swiss reformer and Rome, and the, because there's big, I mean, with all the things against them, the, the kings and the Roman Catholic Church, there's a lot of pressure um, that Luther was under to, to make friends with Zwingli, who was leading the Reformation in a similar Reformation in, in Switzerland. And they could agree on just, they're trying to hammer out a statement of faith, and they couldn't agree on the Lord's Supper. And Luther famously you know, said he couldn't possibly work with a guy who couldn't agree with that and stormed off. So, um, so those are the two main views. Uh, there may be others, but those are the two big ones. And really, where you get the where where the Romans going to get the juice to back up transubstantiation isn't going to be any of the institution accounts. It's going to be John six, and in John six, Jesus is just fed the five thousand, and he gives the discourse: "I'm the bread of life." that come down from heaven. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and they died. I am the bread that comes down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live. And that's where Jesus... Turn, turn to John 6, where if you're going to try to argue transubstantiation, you're probably going to want to do it from John 6, because I don't think anything in Luke would make a reader think he's really talking about flesh. He's way more emphatic in John 6. And as I tried to point out this morning, he's taking something that already itself is a sign, the bread, and then when he says, this is my body, I mean, I don't really think Peter's confused. Is Jesus there or is he here? I, I can't imagine anyone in that first instance having any confusion over what he's saying. It's, it really comes from John 6. Let me get there. Um, Thirty-five. Yep. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I have said to you that you have seen and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. And then where he makes some of the stronger statements is um, verse 52. The Jews began disputing among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood... You have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I'll raise him on the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And so Rome will read that, but dude, you need to, if it's not Jesus' flesh and blood, you're, you're, on, you're out of luck, right? And, that, and they're going to camp out there. Here's the problem with that argument. There's two big problems with that argument. One Nowhere in this passage is communion mentioned. In fact, nowhere in John's gospel is communion referenced. So you've got to import that from the other gospel accounts to John. So as far as the author writing a document goes, nothing in the text suggests John has communion in mind. This is years before communion is instituted. This is while Jesus is ministering around Galilee. That's, That's the first problem. The second is if you don't, automatically assume, ah, communion, and, and look to John to give you cues to what this means. You get the key, as Greg pointed out, in verse 35. 
right? So here's a metaphor, and, and Jesus gives the key to the metaphor in verse 35. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So Jesus equates coming to him as something that satisfies hunger, and, some, and believing in him is something that satisfies thirst. What, what satisfies hunger? What do you do to eat? What do you do to satisfy hunger? You eat food, right? What do you do to satisfy thirst? You drink. So before Jesus ever uses the eating and drinking language that he's going to use in the rest of the chapter, I think he gives the key to the metaphor right there in 35. He's already stated up front, coming to me alleviates hunger, believing in me alleviates thirst. So you got to eat and you got to drink. You got to come and you got to believe. I, he's, the reason he uses the bread metaphor is he's linking it to the manna, not the Passover, not communion. He links it to the manna in the wilderness. And he's the bread come down from heaven. Our fathers ate bread in the wilderness because he's just fed the 5,000. And so unless you import the, um, the, the communion notion into John, which isn't present, John's linking it to the wilderness feedings and John's linking it here with that key to coming and believing. I don't think you can argue it, but if you just grab those three verses that I read at the end there, verses uh, 54 through 57, it looks really compelling. You know, and then you jump over to Luke, this is my body, this is my blood. But if you actually let the follow the cues the author's giving you of where you're going, John does, it'd be easy for John to connect this to communion. He doesn't. So I... Yeah, I, I think that's where the argument starts to fall apart. Alex. And Jesus uses other food metaphors too, like his food is to do the will of his father. Yes, he does. Very good. Yeah, my food. Remember, yeah, that's when uh, the Samaritan woman, right? They go off to buy food and they come back and I have food to eat that you know not of. What is your food? My food is to do the will of the father. Is that what you're talking about or something else? I was else thinking even? it was on a ship, like that they didn't have bread, but I could be very wrong. Or it could be both. Okay. I thought... I, I, yeah, I could be wrong. Asked, why don't you look it up? Okay. Anybody else want the microphone? Oh, Doug. Doug wants them. Doug. Doug. Right? Right there. Oh, who has? Oh, see, this peripheral vision thing. I'm sorry. Naomi, you're next. Could you expand on the haste of the exodus? The number of people involved in taking all the animals, it's hard to envision and imagine how hasty it is. Only from what we're told, that sometime in the night, the angel is going to go through and kill the firstborn son. And in response to that, Pharaoh is going to at least for a time yield and say, okay, get out. And because the Lord knew Pharaoh would change his mind and send an army shortly after them, as quickly as you can get out, a couple hundred thousand or million people is as quickly as they went. I don't know how much being ready helped, but at least no one had to get dressed no one had to gather their, they're ready to go. And so the cry, and they're told, get ready. So you're told at some point tonight, like a fire alarm, it's time, we're to go, be dressed, be ready. And because of that, we can't leaven, we can't leaven our bread and delay. It needs, we need to eat now because we need to have a meal in your stomach before you go. I don't know ultimately how long it took to empty the land of Goshen of the Israelites, but it was expedited by their readiness, but it could have taken hours. I simply don't know. It certainly wouldn't have been, you know, bang. Naomi. I was also thinking on um, 
body and the flesh thing. Mm. In John, isn't it also um, the word became flesh and dwelt among us? Mm-hmm. And so wouldn't also then feeding be reading the Bible and um, looking at God's word? Right. Well, and, and even linking with Jesus tempted in John 4, I mean Luke 4, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes down from the Father. And so the word is something we feed on as well. And so Peter can say, taste and see that the Lord is good. And in, there's numerous Old Testament images of God's word as food. So God gives Ezekiel a scroll and he eats it and it tasted good, but eventually it turns his stomach. And it's because the words of the prophecy that he has are hard words for Israel. But it's God's word, so it's still sweet, but what it says is rough. And that's imagery. So there's, there's consistent biblical usage of metaphor of God's word as food. That's not a new thing. And so when John 1 shows up, the word became flesh and literally tabernacled among us, pitched his tent among us. There's a whole history of Old Testament um, categories like that. Absolutely. I was just trying to make the point that if you're just looking at John, right. like it isn't also only in 35, I mean, but like right. also in 1-1. Well, and that's, and that's one of the problems with, with biblical, when analogies are used, let an author set an analogy, and he'll hopefully give you a key. But I'll give you a great example. So in Exodus, I was talking to Steve Sparks about this earlier this week. In Exodus, when the past, go to Exodus 12, okay? Um, in Exodus 12, your offering doesn't have to be a baby sheep. It can be a baby goat. Absolutely. Because in the Jewish economy, baby Young sheep and young goats were treated in the same category and were, were in many cases interchangeable. And so Steve had, had shrewdly noticed that. And hey, what's up with this goat, right? Um, so Exodus 12, let's get to it. Here we go. Um, verse 3, I tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, everyone shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for the household. And if the household is too small for a lamb... And he and his nearest neighbors shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, and you shall count for the lamb. The lamb should be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. So in the Jewish thinking, a lamb could be the child of a young goat. Okay? Now, the Passover lamb could be a young goat. But the white throne judgment, Jesus separates the sheep from the goats. Well, don't mix the metaphors. (laughs) You know, don't mix the metaphors. Because they're, they're different metaphors. And so just because one author uses sheep and goats one way here, don't assume over here another person making a different metaphor means the same thing. I actually have a list of some biblical mixed me- metaphors because what will happen, someone will read one passage and study one passage where something is typified as a bad thing. Um, let me see where are some of my lists of these. See, I'm weird to keep lists of things. Sheep and goats. Okay, the temple. Is Jesus the temple of God or is the church the temple of God? Or is your body the temple of God? Well, they all are. And if you try to get hung up on which one it is, no. One metaphorical way of speaking of Jesus, Jesus has destroyed this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And Paul in one letter says to the church corporately, you are the temple of God. In chapter three, if anyone tears down God's temple, God will tear him down. But then in chapter 6, don't sleep with prostitutes because you individually are the temple of God. And that metaphor can be used to Jesus, the corporate church, and the individual. It's cool. It's a metaphor. 
or um, the son of man language. Son of man is what Ezekiel calls himself, or is called again and again and again and again and again. It's title Jesus takes on himself. Um, and, uh, well, another one that trips people up is I think Lucifer at one point is called the morning star. Well, Jesus is called the morning star. Well, there's a way you can, there's a true way you can speak of both of them like that. That that's, that can reveal something. But if you're hung up on, no, Jesus is the morning star, then you have a real problem as if that's some office or title, as opposed to Jesus is like a morning star. He's the brightest first year. And Satan was the number one angel. He was like a morning star. Yeah, absolutely. So, so one of the things, probably the worst example, a friend of mine, in John 15, Jesus, speaking to the disciples, says, no longer do I call you slaves, but I call you friends, for a slave does his master's will, but a friend. He, he calls them friends, and you are my friends if you do my will. So Jesus is very there, tight definition of friendship in that context. That's in John. In Luke, Jesus addresses the crowd's friends. And my friend was arguing he's only speaking to those people who do his will. Why? Because in John, he defines... <clears throat> yeah, you gotta, you gotta follow the author of where he's going. So um, with, with metaphors and some of these things, it's, if you, you gotta start... We're getting back to the... This comes back from communion, but you gotta let Luke deal with Luke. John 6, deal with John 6. If they happen to line up, great. But in my understanding, the only way you can really argue for it really being Jesus' body and blood is if you start mixing all those together and you basically take what Jesus says in John 6 and funnel that into Luke 22 and now, you know, um, it's, it's problematic, I think. Alex? So I, I did get my stories mixed up. One of them was John 4 where he's talking with the woman of Samaria and then the other one was uh, Matthew 16 where they get to the other side off the boat and realize they forgot to bring food. So, ah, right. gotcha. Okay, cool. Oh, Kathy. This is a comment on the transubstantiation. Um, years ago, I had a friend who was of the Catholic faith and his wife had died. And, uh, you know, after a couple months, I had given him a couple books and, and I went over to get them before he was moving back east with his he had five children and two were left at home. And um, so I was, you know, sharing with him. And I said, you know, I, um, I just want you to know that you really can know Christ because, and he will comfort you, you know, in this difficulty. And he said, well, I do know Christ. I take his body and blood every week at Mass. And he said, I have him in me. And um, that's one of the dangers, I think, of right. transubstantiation. Well, there's a whole, there's a whole problem with, um, I mean, and these don't worry about these terms. Every guild has its own shop. I mean, if you start getting me around a mechanic, I have no idea what they're saying. So it's just shop talk for guilds. But the whole problem with what's called a sacerdotal system, by which the notion that physical rights accomplish things, as if I'm married, oh, I'm not married. I'm married, I'm not married. This thing, the sign of my marriage, doesn't perform the thing. It, it isn't efficacious. Putting a ring on my son's finger doesn't make him married. Taking a ring off my finger doesn't make me not married. It is a sign. It doesn't do the thing. It doesn't accomplish the thing to which it points. In the sacerdotal system of Rome, and even in some, starting to Lutheranism and either some of the, you start to think that actually eating and drinking this cup is doing stuff. 
Now, there's a sense in which any time God's people respond faithfully and obediently, there's a blessing that comes with that. God works grace through that. But I would argue there is no particular grace or blessing difference in our obedience in taking the Lord's table than our obedience in any other sphere of life. That it isn't the thing itself. And people get hung up on this with baptism. You know, does baptism save? It's the sign of the thing. It's not the thing. You know what I mean? Um, And so it, it doesn't accomplish it. But we always, I think, have this gravity towards thinking that the thing does it, the experience, the right that we're involved in does the thing. Um, and again, the flip side is to totally not care about signs and symbols. Well, since it's not the thing itself, who cares? Well, no, God cared. Uh, he almost put Moses to death because he didn't circumcise his children, right? Um, and throughout the Bible, God cares about signs, and, and signs are meant to solemnly and seriously point to truths. And if we pervert those signs, God does, in fact, care. And if we're not obedient, you know, the heart that says, well, if it, doesn't, if it isn't the thing itself, then who cares? Because the Lord said to do it. That's why. And a heart that says, well, I don't care if the Lord said to do it is in a pretty frightening place. But the flip side of that isn't it's the thing itself. It's the sign. That, just like the rainbow isn't. God's promise, it's the sign of God's promise. Rainbows don't save us from worldwide flooding. God's promise does. The rainbow points to that. Um, so, yeah, in, in Romanism and, in, and even in some of... Lutheranism's got a broad spread. There's, there's edges of Lutheranism that are pretty, pretty evangelical, but there are some edges of Lutheranism and Anglicanism that look an awful lot like Rome without a Pope. Um, they got all the smells and bells and stuff. And... and uh, so, I mean, I don't want to paint as though you could paint Lutheranism with one brush, but, but that is what you start getting into, is when you start thinking the sign is the thing itself, is accomplishing the thing itself. And, yeah, that's, that's when it starts getting weird. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Anybody else? Oh, Elsa. Um, I have a comment on that. If you think um, how the popes used to control the kings by if the kings didn't follow them, they denied the population the Eucharist, yeah. which everybody then rebelled against the kings. Oh, they'd have a peasants' revolt on you, yeah. yeah. Well, that, yeah, that was, that was because Rome taught that the Eucharist was the thing. And the reason I don't like the term Eucharist, a Greek verb just for Thanksgiving, sure, but it's got so much baggage from the Roman Catholic Church. It's in this, because it accomplishes the thing, you need it. And quite literally, without it, you will go to hell. And, so, and, it, and you keep needing it. And, so, and the only place you can get it from is from a legitimate Roman priest who's consecrated it. Um, and so, yeah, the, the Pope wielded inordinate power over the uh, kings in the uh, Middle Ages by saying, I'll just shut down, I'll tell my priest not to offer the laity communion. And I, I got, someone's got a smartphone. There literally, I was reading through uh, church history, there literally was a king who went and kneeled out in front of the Vatican in the snow for three days to apologize to the Pope to get him to turn communion back on. Yeah. Barbarossa? Barbarossa? Thank you. All right. Well, and you, you're not going to, I mean, the people are just saying, whatever you got to do to make the Pope happy, do it. Um, that's why in Rome being excommunicated is being damned to hell. You don't get 
to partake of the sacraments. You need to partake of the sacraments to get God's grace. You're now outside of God's grace. And that's, that's the logic of it. Um, we got 10 minutes. Anybody? Oh, Ron again. I just wanted to comment on um, about the haste. I had heard a, a minister once say that from his perspective, the haste issue for leaving was to kind of demonstrate the um, not to be obsessed with your personal belongings, but just to become demonstrate their to- total dependence upon God as they were going to leave. That may be the case. The only thing that comes to my mind, though, is that the Egyptians were giving them their gold and their valuables. Get out. Please leave. Like, stop cursing us. So they left with spoils and riches and, and all sorts of goods. So, no, it may, I'd have to hear the minister make his case. Um, in, in, yeah, we can go back and look at it. That may as well also be the case as well. Yeah, Wanda. This is just kind of a comment too. I've laryngitis um, for the haste thing. I'm reading a book on the the Exodus, and the author made the comment that all of their years of slavery had made them so strong, and they could tolerate, you know, walking for long distances and where we couldn't. I, and I just thought that was such awesomeness of God that kind of like Joseph said, "You meant it for evil; He meant it for good." I don't know. Just a comment from Wanda, whatever it means. No, no, absolutely. Well, before the automobile, everyone walked everywhere they went. So, so the New Testament verb for conduct yourself literally is walkabout. I mean, it's almost like Australian walkabout. You know, as you so Paul in uh, Ephesians five times walk this way, walk this way, and you're a Western, and you think, well, where are we going? No, it's not. You're not going anywhere in particular. As you walk about throughout the day, walk in light, walk in love, walk in truth. Yeah, and we think, well, where are we going? We're going for a stroll, apparently. How nice. No, <laughs> you're walking. Serena, is she here? Or is she out? She's chatting with somebody, isn't she? She was in uh, Venezuela for your teaching. Everywhere she went, they walked. Everywhere. Um, in many parts of the world today, that's, that's your means of movement. And so people's ability to walk is, was a lot better than ours. You know, you get me going more than 100 yards or so, and you lean against a tree or something, you know. Um, and yet they walked everywhere. Absolutely. And then you throw on top of that, your people generationally doing hard manual labor, they're going to be strong, robust. And that's the whole reason the, uh, the midwives gave for why the women gave birth before the, the midwives came. Because they're, they're so strong and hardy. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I don't even think I want to know what's going on there. Okay. Um, anybody else? Anybody have any other thoughts? What's, what, I'll make, let me make one other final comment. What's interesting is we've looked at Jesus taking Passover and, and refashioning that memorial, adding to it, to the sign of his new covenant. There's even more meaning in, pass, in communion that Paul brings out in 1 Corinthians 10. Let's go there real fast. Go to 1 Corinthians 10. So we've seen primarily, if you think of it, the vertical implications of communion. Paul 
is going to draw some horizontal implications as well. In 1 Corinthians 10. Um, and here's where we get our term communion from. If you wonder why do we call it communion instead of the Eucharist. 1 Corinthians 10. Verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a, and the Greek word is koinonia, which we get communion from, a fellowship or participation. Is it not a participation in or of the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a partition or koinonia, a communion, in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake one bread. One of the other signs of communion is by us doing it together, sharing from one loaf and one cup, and we learned this morning that one cup doesn't mean we all have to drink out of one cup. Jesus didn't do that in the first instance. He divided it up. Um, but it came from one clear source. So we can refer to this cup. that We've all poured everyone into our own goblet some. Um, it, not only does it say those vertical things about God and the new covenant and his death, but our unity and our fellowship, we are one. You know, this is why, you know, Paul says to examine yourself. And, and, there, and this get, you, here's a perfect sign of God taking signs seriously. Stay in 1 Corinthians 10. So communion is a sign. And one of the things, and the reason Paul's making this point, is the problem the Corinthian church is having is not that they're not cherishing Christ and his work, but they're being jerks to each other, and they're quarreling, and there's factions. And so he goes on to say to them in chapter 11, so he sets up that groundwork. Don't you realize... One of the things the sign of communion gives is our unity. We who are one body eat from one loaf. We who are one body drink from one cup. Then that lays the foundation for his charge against them in verse um, ooh, 20, ooh, not 20, um, 18, 17. From the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better or, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, which I love, by the way, you don't come to church, you come to be a church. When you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Now, verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? So here's, here's the, and then he, okay, so what's their problem? This sign, which is supposed to be in one of the things it symbolizes, is their unity and commonality. They are twisting and blaspheming by actually using it as a cause of division. So they're not waiting for everyone to show up, and some people don't have bread, so well, then you don't get to eat. This other guy over here, he's been drinking the cup so long he's drunk. And that perverts and blasphemes the sign. What's the consequence? Look at verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For everyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some of you have died. God was killing people in the Corinthian church because they weren't taking the sign seriously enough. And they were using it to, to indicate things that were not true. Or really, it's the hypocrisy of, we think, in essence, one of the things we're doing, we're all one, we're unified as we are waiting for people, not waiting for people, as other people are going ahead, as some people are hungry. They're, in their practice of this sign of their unity, they are divided. And God is displeased with that, and there's judgment coming out. So, signs matter. They don't have to be the thing themselves to matter. 
So that, those are the other issues. Greg, you're, he's going to close this out here. Well, I was just thinking with your entire family here on the unique situation with the few minutes we have left, uh, they could regale us with uh, anecdotal episodes of your youth. Um, you are dismissed. <laughs> <laughs>